Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, Ellen here. How are you? How has your week been? Has it been happy and sunshiny? Or maybe you've been on holiday? Maybe you're on holiday right now, lucky you. Maybe it's not been such a great week. That happens. If that's what's happening for you, Right now, I hope we can distract you from the not-so-greatness for the next 50 minutes or so. Maybe give you a little bit of relief. Before I tell you about our guest today, I have a couple of other things I really want to tell you about. The first is a little more about our fantastic partner for this season of the podcast, the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference, which is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 28th and 29th of April 2020. And I really want to mention why I think it's such a good match for the show. And the keywords are in the name, well-being and evidence. So here at Potential Psychology, we're all about well-being, the state of being well, both physically and emotionally, but we're also about the evidence. So knowing that the tips, ideas, strategies and tools that we advocate and use, that I use myself and that I use and teach my clients, have been rigorously tested by scientists so that we can be confident not only that they work, but also that they do no harm. And that's what the Wellbeing and Evidence Horizons Conference is all about too. It's giving us the chance to hear from the experts, those who do the science, so that we can better separate fact from fiction and employ wellbeing practices with some confidence. And I don't think there could be a better match for the show. So I'll tell you a little bit more about the conference next week. But if you want to know more right now, you can pop over if not now, at least once you've listened to this episode, to weh.org.au to explore the program, see the speakers, and of course, register to attend. And there's a link in our show notes to the conference as well, and a link in the show description in your podcast app. So we're making it super easy for you to go and check it out. Okay. So the second thing I want to talk about really briefly is an article that I've been reading. Well, it's actually a series of long-form blog posts. It's by Tim Urban from the site Wait But Why. And maybe you already read their stuff. If you haven't read Tim's post from a few years ago now called Why Procrastinators Procrastinate, you absolutely must. And I'll pop a link to that in the show notes as well. I still think back to the ideas from that blog post whenever I find myself procrastinating and need to stop. It's just, it's fabulous. Anyway, Urban's currently publishing this enormous series called The Story of Us on Wait But Why, and it's essentially about human beings. And chapter seven, which came out recently, is called The Thinking Ladder, and it's about thinking in two dimensions. So often we think about what is going on, 
or what someone is doing, and that's thinking in one dimension, the what dimension. To think in two dimensions, we have to consider why something is happening, what might be driving someone's behaviour, why are they doing what they're doing. And as Urban says, many of the human world's mysteries become a lot less mysterious when we put our x-ray goggles on and see what lies behind the scenes of every human. It is amazing reading. It's long, it's comprehensive, it's entertaining, it's insightful, it's educational. Basically, it's just amazing. So I've put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. If you want to, at any stage soon, make yourself a tea or a coffee and sit down and do some really incredible reading. Which brings me to my guest for today's episode. It is time to introduce him and he most definitely thinks in at least two dimensions. In fact, it's the why of human behaviour that drives him, drives his work and drives his passion for spreading the word about emotional well-being and human potential to a wider audience. With me today is Dr. Jared White, a Melbourne-based clinical psychologist and the co-founder of The Lives of Others, which is an Instagram platform allowing followers to share their mental health and mental ill health stories. And while Jared works one-on-one with clients as a psychologist and runs group workshops, he's curious about the potential and future possibilities for mental health and well-being. He's here with me today to explore the questions, how can we provide mental health and well-being services in different formats to traditional one-on-one therapy? How can we reach bigger groups and different audiences? And what are we missing by keeping psychologists in a therapy room? It's a topic that aligns beautifully with the purpose of this podcast, and I'm very excited to have him here. Welcome, Jared. Hi, thanks for having me. This is exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. <laughs> and and you are somewhat of an expert at this media business now because you just said that you were on Triple J, which is an Australian radio station here last night. What were you talking about? Yeah, so last night I was on Triple J. The question uh, essentially was, what do you do when your partner calls you too emotional or too sensitive? So it was on a show called The Hookup, and The Hookup runs, I think, every Sunday night at 9 p.m., and they generally get a range of different psychologists and um, mental health workers to talk to, you know, relationships, sex, love, all of those things that we probably don't talk about enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what was your advice? <laughs> Should I ask? Oh. <laughs> People have to listen in. Is that a whole other conversation? <laughs> well, I'll send you the podcast of the episode. Do that. Uh, Do yeah, that and I'll put yeah. it in the show notes for people to listen to. <laughs> yeah. In a nutshell, it was generally looking at the idea of why is it even a problem to be emotional and how do we work with our emotions in general, but also how do we listen to other people and gave some advice on on some of the best ways to really listen to people's emotions. Okay, fantastic. Well, that could be another podcast conversation, but today (laughs) we're going to talk a little bit more about future possibilities for mental health and wellbeing. But before we get into that, could you tell me a little bit about the work that you do and what you love about it? Yeah, sure. Well, when I talk about the work that I do now, I kind of start with a lot of the work that I did earlier, which was working at the Melbourne DBT Centre, which was really my first sort of intro into you know, private practice and therapy on my own. And so I worked there for about five years and I found that awesome because it helped ground me in 
a certain framework, DBT framework for therapy. So I found that really useful to then be able to launch myself into different therapies. But it was also really handy to find a way to work not only with individuals but with groups because DBT obviously has a very strict group module that it follows. So I did that for about five years and now as I was kind of petering out at the DBT centre, I think it's not a very long life that people have at DBT because it can be quite draining work. I transitioned to a place called the Mind Room in Collingwood and I find myself there now and I love the work there. I would do one-on-one work with clients and I see a whole range of presentations, but still predominantly, I'd say, people with more extreme emotion dysregulation. And I also spend a day there devoted to other projects, so things like workshops, writing articles, some media work and some community engagement. What do I love about it? It's a big question. I think (laughs) uh, there's a lot. When I think about what I love about the work that I do, I often think about where it stems from. And I go back to my youth and a great deal of my interest in psychology stemmed from, I think, being a grandson of a Holocaust survivor. And, you know, a third generation Holocaust survivor at school, we focused on the Holocaust in World War II quite a bit. And it sort of it helped create an interest in a question, which you kind of see, I think, in a few different places, like there was a documentary I watched called Worse Than War by Daniel Goldhagen and a book I read at the time when I was at school called Ordinary Men by um, Chris Browning. And they follow Zimbardo experiments and Milgram experiments and things like that and ask the question how and why do humans continue to do this thing, you know, where effectively where genocide and war occurs when we know that it's not good for us and we kind of, it hurts us. So why do we do it? And I think that kind of really spawned my interest in psychology. And I guess on a one-on-one level, I get to answer that question every day, you know, particularly when you work with what's typically referred to as personality disorders, you get to confront the question, why do we keep doing the same things, even though they're harmful for us or making situations worse? And as a very superficial answer, I think one of the things that I love about the work is that I get to do exactly this, what we're doing right now. I get to sit, have a conversation with someone and connect with someone for a living every day. So that's pretty awesome to be able to do that. I feel very lucky to be able to do that. In terms of the other side of things, the workshops, community outreach, I guess the broader context, the thing I love about that is also kind of going back to my youth again, you know, it's being ingrained in this Holocaust upbringing where you're sort of taught about the Holocaust quite a bit and you speak about it at home, the message that emerges is this idea of never forget. And I had the the luxury or fortune of being able to lead this program called the March of the Living. It's basically a program where you take students from all over Australia, Jewish students, to sites of the Holocaust in Poland and you explore what happened. But you really explore that question, which is uh, we say never forget never again but it's happening all the time why is it happening and when I got to see the way that that experiential trip had an impact on the kids that I was taking it sort of really spawned an interest for me in how can you work with larger groups you know one of the things that then I was inspired to do is think about you know there's a huge struggle with mental health all over the globe really and 
I looked at, you know, we say that message of never again and what are we doing to create a better world and what am I doing? That was the message I was giving the kids, what are you doing? But I had to look at myself and say, what am I doing? And one-on-one work with people is amazing and I think it can make such a difference. But I also felt the need for myself to do things on a larger scale. And I find that entirely fulfilling. I think, you know, some people might call it transgenerational survivor guilt. Some people might call it a white saviour complex. And I suppose I need to be aware of that too, being a a white male in Australia. And others would call it uh, community outreach and in a sense trying to do things on a large scale with people and help people on a larger scale. So I guess it's probably a mixture of all three and I need to kind of be aware of all of them. Yeah, well, you've given it more foot than I have, to be honest, when you were saying that because, I mean, it's certainly, and and my listeners know this, that it's part of my purpose and the reason for the podcast is to be able to, I suppose, spread the word about mental health, that positive health and well-being and to really share the evidence, share what psychology and psychologists know and other researchers and the experts in this area in order to really give everybody the tools to thrive and flourish. And that's driven for me in part by, I guess, a sense of meaning and purpose, but I'd not really thought it through in any greater depth or level of complexity like you have. (laughs) I spend a lot of time thinking, probably too much time thinking, yeah. (laughs) And that did strike me, actually, Jared, as you were describing even just, I mean, a a level of introspection, perhaps a level of awareness, a level of thought given through all of those experiences that you had even as a school kid. Now, whether the exposure to some of the conversations that you were having around the Holocaust and, and survivorship that existed perhaps in the environment you were growing up in that didn't exist for all of us, whether that triggers that or maybe it's just part of who you are, that you are a thoughtful individual. Maybe a bit of both. I'm Maybe not sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here today to talk about a lot of that stuff. So that idea, you know, what is it that we can do as, you know, both psychologists in this case, but for anybody who has an interest in mental health, positive mental health and well-being and, and how we might be able to further that cause of, you know, spreading the word a little more or doing our bit maybe to help others I think that very pertinent question that you asked yourself in asking those students while you're on the march of the living can you just tell us a little bit more about the community outreach work that you do because as you said you work one-on-one in therapy type situations and we've already mentioned that you do radio what is the other stuff that you do to further that purpose yeah, well, I've been engaged in some really interesting work since coming across to the Mind Room, and I kind of appreciate the opportunities they've afforded me in doing some of this stuff. I actually ran my first workshop on Saturday. So that was a workshop with, you know, 18 people, and it's open to the public. Whoever wants to come can come. And it's uh, that one was all about understanding emotion and how do we influence our own emotions. So that's kind of really taking a lot of psychology principles and being able to talk about it in a group setting and it's kind of like group therapy but not group therapy it's this weird mix between presenting and group therapy the mind room has a whole range of different programs that they run there's also a few public programs that they run around uh, a bit more community outreach uh, around the collingwood area so i've been involved in a program that will take to the library in collingwood library on Fitzroy Library, actually, where we just talk about well-being and do a bit of a workshop on having your own well-being workout. Uh, there's a community outreach day for 
the Yarra Council that's coming up where we're going to have a stall and just provide people with some information around mental health. I was involved actually in a really exciting endeavour earlier this year, which was uh, called the Safe Theatres Forum. It was a forum where a whole range of actors and actresses, directors, producers, theatre company owners would come together and talk about what it means to be safe and uh, think about mental health and wellbeing in the theatre space. And there I was just acting, I suppose, as uh, someone consulting, but also as a psychologist there in case someone needed to talk about something that came up during the event. And that was a really amazing initiative to be a part of. Other than that, uh, write articles, which is just a good way to get some information out there to the masses. You know, I've written an article recently on how do you know if you've got narcissistic traits or something like that? It was all about yeah. identifying yeah. narcissism. And then I suppose um, the other work that I do is more my own work, which you've alluded to, which is the lives of others. Um, and that's uh, using Instagram as a platform to promote some mental health work. So tell us a little bit about the lives of others and, and how did it start and why did it start? I've got so many questions. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, well, it's a social media platform effectively on Instagram. Uh, what we do is we post stories of mental health that individuals will send to us and with their permission we post their stories. Uh, we post expressions of mental health. So basically uh, we're cognizant of the fact that people express their feelings and thoughts in all sorts of different ways. So we've posted you know, tattoos and poems and artwork that people will have created in order to express their mental health. We post questions to ask the wider audience, you know, what do you think of this? Or, you know, for example, what are some great mental health uh, organizations out there doing some really cool initiatives in 2019? And from that, we get a whole array of tips from people out there. And so we have this thing called the tip jar, where basically people will send in tips and we'll promote those tips to the wider audience based on whatever the other people, the lives of others, the other people send in. Mm. Uh, so it's really tips for the public, by the public. And something we're also starting to do is post a lot more about community organisations and different organisations out there. I think it started just basically when I was talking to a friend of mine who's also a psychologist and we were just talking about Instagram. I shared a post once on my own personal Instagram. It was just this picture of this really cute little toy elephant and it just said mental health, the elephant's in the room. And I just put it facing a window, like looking out, thinking, contemplating. And we just had this chat around how there doesn't seem to be a huge uh, following on mental health when it comes to these social media outlets, but how important it is because obviously uh, we're all aware in some sense that social media has potential problems for our mental health. So how can we use this space in an effective way? And we had some chats and then we just started doing it we basically said okay let's see what we can do here and I think that was one of the most interesting things about the endeavor is that you know we, t we, could, we talked and you could talk and talk and talk forever but eventually it got down to a point where all right let's just start and see what happens and then from there we built a following and it's just sort of emerged into what it is today. And it has got quite a community around it now I think it was I did check and now I've forgotten. <laughs> what, in approximately how many followers do you have in the last uh, couple You know, who's counting? Who's <laughs> counting? But it's about, it's about 21,000 followers at the it's, moment. Yeah. So that's yeah. nice. That's yeah. Nice. yeah. Um, and I suppose the reason for it in general is, 
you know, uh, out there, so many people are dealing with feelings of isolation and being a burden, difficulty seeking help, feeling like they're not sure who to turn to or where to have these conversations. And I suppose the antidote in that sense that we see is about reconnecting with ourselves and each other, taking therapy outside the therapy room and thinking about how mental health is also about our culture and not just the individual. And so hopefully the lives of others does a bit of that and, and actually focuses a little bit on that as well. Yeah, and I, I, there are a number of people, or many of the people, many of the stories that they tell, and they are wonderful, wonderful stories, tend to be of people who have struggled with their mental health over the years or struggled with mental ill health. And they share that. They share a little of what's worked, which is really <clears throat> wonderful to see. Do you ever have or do you emphasize at any point I suppose the thing for me is always you know there's a a portion of our community who do struggle with mental ill health but then there's kind of a good 75 to 80 percent of us who don't necessarily but equally need the connection the support the tips does that emerge from these stories anywhere along the line yeah I I think interesting question I think one of the things that happens when people send in these stories is that you generally see many of the stories to be a lot about struggle. I think that's our association when it comes to mental health. So I think that there is this immediate link between the struggles that we've had and mental health. And so it generally tends to be in that vein. At the same time, I think the the tips and the expressions with that, we try and make it around pretty much, you know, everyone is struggling with something. And that's kind of developed in the iterations we've had of the main purpose of what the lives of others is. I think one thing I've learned about, you know, engaging in an endeavor like this is that it changes, the purpose changes. The purpose changes with me growing and my co-founder growing, but it also changes with the way that people respond to it. And so I think that in these iterations, I've kind of come to a place where it does need to be a little bit more about everyone. Um, and it's not just about the individuals that have uh, along the more extreme end of uh, mental ill health, but also about people struggling with things that are going on every day, struggling with emotions, which we all do, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, well, it is an interesting question. <laughs> Even if you were saying that, I'm sort of like, I mean, the wonderful thing about that iterative process, and I guess it's similar for the, you know, for me and for the podcast or anybody who's endeavouring to create something, especially in this field where there isn't, you know, this is not traditional stuff for psychology. You know, as you said, psychology traditionally has been one-on-one therapy or perhaps small group therapy. Certainly over the last probably 100 years, it has focused on largely mental ill health. But I feel, and I wonder if you do too, that we are transitioning partly as a society to be able to speak a little more about mental health as something that affects all of us and that we can be proactive about perhaps in a preventative form or even just to be able to thrive and flourish and, and grow and learn more. Do you think that's something yeah. that's just happening socially right now? Uh, absolutely. And I think um, that shift from surviving to thriving is kind of becoming more a part of our discourse. I think that, you know, uh, when we talk about positive psychology and thinking more about psychology from how do we get people that are zero to positive 10, 
it is becoming more a part of what we do. It's happening in schools. Um, it's starting to teach mindfulness and resilience um, and some positive psychology principles. I think there's still a long way to go. And I think it's also interesting to think about the tension that you have in that because on the one hand, doing that and, and talking about mental health in a way that suggests that we all have struggles is really normalizing and can help people feel a bit connected. And at the same time, the tension there is that you don't want to undermine what the more extreme ill health, uh, mental ill health, you don't want to undermine that in any way and suggest that, you know, everyone's experiencing the same thing because everyone's struggle is unique and different. So I think it's a really important shift. I think it's happening and I think it's something we need to watch as well. I think that's a really good point, actually. I know I was just interviewed for a local newspaper article recently on men's health and the topic was around men's mental health, by which they really meant ill health. And I was at pains to try and convey the fact that I'm not a clinical psychologist to start with. I don't kind of work in that field. By the same token, I really wanted to talk about the things that we can all do just to maintain a good level of well-being, mm. which is, you know, your sleep and your exercise and your social connection and mindfulness and all of those things that we know work. But trying to actually convey that, you know, in the context of conversation that was really about mental ill health and about suicide, A, I'm not sure I felt like I really conveyed it as well as I would have liked to, and B, what was quoted, I'm fairly sure wasn't exactly what I said anyway. <laughs> you always walk away going, oh, I could have done that better. Well, Maybe I, I and I did, that. I did, you know, it's always hard when you speak to journalists because they, especially print, you know, they just quick question, write everything down, boom, thanks, we're gone. And then it's like, mm. did they get, because there's a lot of nuance around this stuff, just as you were saying, you know, there's a lot of Absolutely. complexity. I think, you know, what I did feel a little bit like, or certainly how I felt it was conveyed in the article, the end result article, was that it made it sound like, oh, if you just sleep and exercise, you'll be right. You know, and right. obviously that, that, right. that isn't it's the so case. Much more complex <laughs> so that. much more complex than that, especially mm. in that context of ill health, you know, suicidal risk, et cetera, et cetera. So it's hard. This is difficult stuff. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I, I've i constantly grappled with, which I think stems back to my thesis, uh, my thesis was around effectively cross-cultural notions of trauma or more, more aptly, how do different cultures understand the notion of trauma? And in doing that research, I really started to grapple with the notion of diagnosis. You know, what does diagnosis mean and how helpful is it and how useful is it today? You know, one of the most poignant things that I sort of looked into is how mental health has changed over time. And, you know, what we once considered to be ill health is no longer. And we didn't even have so many of the categories that we have now 30, 40 years ago. You know, PTSD is relatively new. It's 35 or 39 years old. So there is that question around how useful is diagnosis and how useful is the categories and the labels. And at the same time, you don't want to undermine that either because it's those labels have helped promote mental health in such an amazing way where we now talk about it and everyone knows what depression and anxiety or knows at least the label of depression and anxiety. Maybe not everyone, but a lot of people. And I think that's really helped the conversation around mental health become something that's uh, quite prevalent in the public space. At the same time, do we stick to those categories and labels and how helpful is that? Mm. So it's a really interesting tension. 
Mm, it is, isn't it? Just having a language is helpful, whether, you know, mm. even if we take the diagnosis side out of it, just having a language to be able to talk about something that is depression. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. These are potentially the things you might be experiencing if that's where you're at right now. But yes, and I, I know that certainly in schools, there has been concern around diagnosis and the level of diagnosis and kids readily identifying perhaps with things that are not necessarily at a clinical level. They're just every day, but then they're being diagnosed. And it, it is really, really complex. But I think when you take mm. that broader perspective, and I think that's what's useful about what you've described there, Jared, when you take that broader perspective of maybe 100 years and look at this as an evolutionary process because really even the conversation about mental ill health is not very long when you put it in the context of, you know, even medicine as a profession, let alone history itself, humankind. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I was thinking as you're talking about where PTSD originated, you know, and they talk about the idea that it originated 2,000 years ago um, and it was believed to be this kind of hysteria of sorts where it was all around the temporal and random movement of the uterus. So it was obviously particular to females, and I think oh, we've come a very long way since then. But that's what it was believed to be at the time. That's what it was at the time. But now it's obviously entirely different. This is what we believe it to be now. This is what it is. Although, you know, surely, based on history, based on what we know, it's going to change again. Yeah. Yes. And there's a social context around all of that as well. When you think about shell shock as, as being a kind of a precursor to PTSD or as mm. the label anyway, and, and that was obviously coming from modern wartime, if that makes sense, you know, versus the ancient ideas versus perhaps what our idea is now. So, yes, what will our idea be next? Yeah. And it's absolutely. not just PTSD, all the other things. Yeah. Jared, just coming back to the lives of others, what is it that you feel that your audience gain? Because you have developed this community and it's that, again, is an evolutionary and a growing thing. There must be, do you get a sense from your followers of what it is that they enjoy? Why do they connect? Mm, I think um, I try to put it into four key areas. The first one is to just connect with and be inspired by other stories and expressions of mental health. That's critical, you know, if we can just have people, and we've received messages of the sort from people just saying, you know, they really uh, valued being able to see that story today or just to feel uh, not so isolated in their own lives. I think one thing that we try and do that we, uh, we've had some feedback from users that they kind of get this is just to learn about thoughts, feelings, emotions, behaviors, the body, the mind, our culture around mental health. So just having that conversation in many different ways from all sorts of different people. You know, we've had posts from all around the world. So India, Germany, the States, Canada, you know, everywhere. I think it also gives people a platform. You know, what, what the lives of others is, is a place where they can have a voice. It's not about the words of psychologists, psychiatrists, it's their words. And I think that's really helpful. And I suppose what it then does, the final one is allows them to express themselves and express their mental health in the way that they want to, in the way that that works for them. Yeah. That social element of social media, that it is actually yeah. about, yeah. you know, <laughs> and interesting too, you know, what, from your perspective and your co-founder's perspective as a fellow psychologist, you know, having a platform there that is about 
the audience, you know, they're not there to learn from you as the experts. They're there to learn from each other and to share. Where do you kind of fit in with that? Because mm. it is a different way, particularly for psychologists to think about their roles, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I've been grappling with for the last year around this endeavour is how do I put myself into this project? I think it can help to have myself in it. Also, I have to be aware of my role. You know, I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist, but I'm, I'm not the clinical psychologist of people that follow mm. this account. So I have to be careful in considering my boundaries. And at the same time, I also want to inject some of what I do know because I, I have had 10 years of study in the, in the area and I work with it every day. So there are things that I learn and I do know that I can contribute. I see my role as somewhat at this point of a bit of a facilitator, uh, just sort of facilitating that connection, facilitating the project itself and at times weighing in here or there with a thought or something I learned or a post that I saw or an organisation I heard about and just providing that, those tools to people as well. So really being a member of the community yourself. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. And there's definitely a theme there when I think through all the things you've spoken about from the March of the Living, the lives of others, the workshops that you facilitate of bringing groups together, bringing communities together and that facilitation that you mentioned, you're actually trying to facilitate learning, facilitate help rather than necessarily being the expert. Would that be fair? Mm. Yeah, I, I think I try to also do that a little bit in my one-on-one uh, -on -one practice. I often will say to people when I first meet them that, look, uh, you know, I'm a young psychologist. I'm 31. I look even a little bit younger and hopefully it remains that way. But I tell them at the start, look, I'm not an authority on life. There's a lot I don't know about life. I know about my experience, about the experience of some people that come in, but I need your help in that sense. Um, you're the authority on your own life. And if we can work together, then we can come to an even sort of greater understanding or solution. But I'm not the authority. Mm. And I think that's really helpful. Yeah, look, I, it, certainly, I mean, that's something, and I, and I guess really that's the role of every psychologist, isn't it, that we, we have a level of knowledge or expertise in particular domains, but when it comes to working with individuals, the goal is always to facilitate rather than dictate maybe or oh, yeah. even, and, and maybe that's a misperception on the part of people when they go to see psychologists, I don't know, but, mm. you know, that we are there because I know certainly in my training, in my, in my postgraduate training when I was doing coaching psychology, we were taught that, you know, the client is always the expert in their own life. Right. That, that right. same idea that, you know, you're there to facilitate and use the tips and tools and strategies to help move them from where they are to where they want to be, but they are the expert in their mm. own life and what that could look like and what they want it to look like. Yeah, I don't know if I had that training in my clinical psychology <laughs> training. Is that you something know? you had to learn elsewhere? It was very yeah. much a theme in coaching psychology. Uh, yeah, I think... Uh, my I don't That's want to talk uh, badly about the field of clinical psychology, you know, because I think it's a fantastic field. I'm obviously a part of it. But I think maybe in the clinical psychology field, because it really has that sort of a little bit more of a medicalized approach, it kind of is taking a little bit more of a stance where we are the experts mm. and trying to work against that can be a little bit difficult I don't know maybe that's just a thought that I, I haven't researched that so if anyone okay. out there is upset by that don't come <laughs> up 
other psychologists <laughs> let us know what were you taught in your training is the client the expert or are you there to be the expert that could be a whole other podcast conversation yeah, couldn't it? Right. <laughs> jared you're obviously thoughtful in this regard and, and have given some thought you know what do you think is the future for mental health some of these you know if we're talking about this as an evolution within the field mm. and moving towards how do we build communities, how do we move beyond the therapy room, how do we create scale, I guess, you know, to use an entrepreneurial term, how do we scale up what we're doing for the benefit of others? Well, I think uh, the first thing, as you mentioned, is all about community, trying to work with a community approach a little bit more as psychologists. Um, we are very good at working with one-on-one but seeing the one-on-one as a part of the broader community and helping the individual find their place in the community. I was obviously a part of the one-on-one work we do, but maybe there's a way that we can do that on a larger scale. I watched uh, a while ago that documentary, uh, Happy, I think that was called. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they talk about is that, you know, what helps make people the happiest, and that is community. So I think as psychologists, if we are directed towards helping people find obviously there's baggage around this term but happiness in some sense you know how can we work with the community to facilitate that i think some other things that could happen or hopefully happen in the next five to ten years or so is that hopefully we move a little bit uh, beyond the labels not getting rid of them but at least talk more about what's underneath them talk more about the emotions, talk more about the relationships, talk about uh, the patriarchy or the oppression of marginalised groups and how that really plays such a huge factor in uh, mental health. So in that sense, I'd like to see psychologists actually expand to other fields. You know, I mean, we already have a bit of a representation in schools and in um, sports clubs and perhaps even in the law, but what about psychology and politics, you know, or psychology and hospitality or the creative arts or something like that, really broadening so that we can start to have a bit of influence in other fields where we can help in that sense, bring people together. So there are two things. I think one thing I'd love to see that I don't think any psychologist would have a problem with is more sessions, you know, government funded. (laughs) We've been talking about how we can start to think about moving from that surviving to thriving model and it's so important but with 10 sessions especially when you have this notion that you have to go to a GP to get a mental health care plan I mean in and of itself there's this underlying notion that you're going to someone that helps you when you're sick Mm. uh, to get a mental health care plan to get the government funded sessions I don't really think that is conducive to shifting to this model of thriving so I think maybe changing that whole approach would be really helpful and you know a pipeline dream as I kind of alluded to before if this could happen in the next 10 years it would be fantastic I love psychologists this is totally pipeline but I'm just going to put it out there <laughs> that's right we're talking I'd about love, future possibilities <laughs> yeah, I'd love a psychologist influence politics a little bit more when it comes to politicians talking about emotion you know one of the things that I struggle with when I see on tv or is the way that politicians just avoid the conversation around emotions you know like if you think back to the war on terror uh, in the United States and it was kind of like this whole doctrine around we will not be intimidated we're not going to be afraid and it's kind of like well hold on a second I'm actually a little bit afraid Surely you're a little bit afraid. We're all a little bit afraid. Let's not avoid fear. It's actually a really important part of what's going on. Let's address it and use it effectively. 
And you see it in Bhutan, right? They have this focus on gross national happiness as the measure of worth of the country as opposed to gross domestic productivity. Now, why can't we all start moving towards that direction? Absolutely. And I think as you were speaking then, I thought this could be about humanising politicians. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe. I don't want to suggest yeah. that they're not human, but I, and I know, you know, for me working as a workplace psychologist, one of the things that I try to emphasise, particularly because I work with leaders, is that you're allowed to be human as a leader. I think a lot of us in workplaces, particularly those people who are in senior leadership positions, feel that they have to kind of put what I call their leader or manager hat on, at which point they kind of disassociate from their human side and, you know, feel that they have to have the answers, have to always be on top of everything, you know. It's kind of an absence perhaps of real authenticity, which I know creates problems for them. You know, internally it creates problems for us if we have to pretend that we're indestructible at all times and and all-knowing. And I suspect that may be very similar with politicians that perhaps Mm. as leaders they feel that they're unable to show or that they shouldn't somehow show that more human side and yet as you say you know that not only has implications I think for the individuals themselves you know there can just be such a great disconnect between who I'm pretending to be and who I really am but then it just misses a wonderful opportunity to convey that human element to the people listening, you know, the, the people paying attention to those followers. And as you say, you know, that's going to reduce the opportunity for conversation about emotions such as fear, such as confusion. A lot of topics mm. are very confusing, just as we've spoken yeah. about today. You know, <laughs> things are not black and white. They're often complex yeah. with nuance. And to pretend otherwise is really doing everyone a disservice, I think. Yeah, absolutely great. Absolutely. So lots of ideas there about, and and clearly you have given this some thought, you know, the future possibilities (laughs) of how these things could work. What do you think, and and I suppose it goes to perhaps some opportunities, or as you mentioned, some opportunities that psychologists are missing out on. How do you think you make this change? What what do we need to do to make this? Because I think these are all wonderful ideas you've got here. How do we make it happen? Oh, okay. (laughs) Is that Uh, a $64 million question? (laughs) Yeah, no, the million-dollar question, I think. Um, oh, wait, that's less than 64, isn't it? 64 million. <laughs> yeah. part, whatever. Big yeah. number. <laughs> Big number. We're not cool with numbers, psychologists. Yeah, no, we're not. Um, so how do we do this? One way is to think about the way that we focus on individual therapy because that is a space that we're quite prominent in at the moment. Um, and maybe it's about changing the way that we do some of the individual therapy. Not, not changing entirely, but maybe broadening it a little bit. So there's a really, I'll tell you a really quick story, which is a story that I heard, I watched a video. I don't know if you ever heard of The Moth. It's a storytelling night that happens. It's happened once or twice in Melbourne, but it happens in New York. I think I have, but yes, tell us more. Right. So there's a guy, Andrew Solomon, he talks about his own sort of dealing with depression and he said, you know, he tried to find someone that could help him in the States, couldn't, um, went over to, I can't remember which country, but it was in Africa. And he he spoke to them to see if they could help him heal in the sense. And he just tells, I'll do it in a quick nutshell. He basically goes into the community. They say, all right, yep, we can help you. 
he comes outside and there's all these people drumming and dancing and there's a big community circle and he goes into this bed, which is in the middle of the community. And in the bed is a live ram and he goes into bed with the ram. They throw the sheets on him. They then grab a sword, slice the ram, blood's everywhere. They rip the sheets off him. He's standing up naked all of a sudden in the middle of the community uh, with blood all over him. And they said to him, all right, well, this part's over now. Do you want a Coke or something? And he's like, yeah, okay, I'll have a Coke, uh, I guess. And he says he felt amazing. He felt incredible. And he went back to uh, Rwanda around the time of the genocide. And uh, he spoke to the mental health workers there and the people in Rwanda there. And they said that they had to tell all of the mental health workers that came from other countries to go home. He said, why did you do that? And he said, well, their practices didn't involve drumming, you know, to kind of get your heart moving. It didn't involve sunlight to get, uh, you know, some much needed vitamin uh, D. Mm. Didn't involve the sense that the whole town was out there to work with you on what's going on. Instead, they'd take us into a dark room one by one and make us talk about all the bad things that happened to them. And I think that's so poignant because we do that on a day-to-day basis. Now, obviously, there's a lot of therapeutic benefit to it. And at the same time, perhaps we can broaden that one-on-one approach that we have and, and in that sense, bring the community into it a little bit more. I think by doing that in a space where we already have a stronghold, we can start to broaden what we do. And then in turn, that has a ripple effect, brings other people into that process and, I guess, you know, facilitate that facilitate bringing other people into the space of mental health and into doing bring us into the space of everything else Mm. so really learning I suppose I mean as you're speaking about that notion of community and you know what are the ways that we do it already well there are support networks that I know are very helpful for people within particular communities and I'm thinking about some of my local psychologists who run transgender support programs and support groups which is just kind of drop in turn up chalk but also walking therapy so i interviewed susie redding on the program a little while ago now she's based in the uk and does a lot of well-being yoga but also what she calls walking therapy so she takes clients out and rather than sitting in a room they go hike through a forest and she's now in the uk she was in sydney she started by you know walking along the beach and looking at the therapeutic properties you know that result from partly walking side by side so you know not necessarily having that kind of having to look straight at each other not as intimidating yeah Mm. be a bit confronting the outdoors the nature the physical movement and and all of the things that we know which do make perfectly logical sense that you know we would do therapy in that way rather than sitting, as you say, in a small dark room. And a lot of therapy rooms, are they're getting better. <laughs> they're getting better. <laughs> they are getting better. Getting there better. are some beautiful ones now, but historically they have not been good. <laughs> Which is what I love about the mind room, just such a beautiful space and, you know, some open light and it's really nice. Where I was before that, it, there were no windows in the rooms and it just, it, you know, it kind of feels like everything's closing in on you a little bit, especially when those heavier topics come up the space is a little bit congested and it's mm. nice to have some some light coming through. Mm. Yeah, so thinking more about what we know and what we know works, the community, mm. the physical space we're in, perhaps being active, physically active rather than passive. Yeah, right, right. I think there are a whole bunch of organisations out there that are doing some totally amazing things in the same vein. You know, there's a whole range of different organisations on Instagram that do some amazing work 
like uh, there's one called To Write Love on Her Arms. There's one called 180, which is all young people creating stuff for young people. There's one called Hope for the Day, which is all a, it's a non-profit organisation that focuses on uh, suicide prevention by providing outreach and mental health education through music and art. There's also other organisations like Homer, which is a, a mental health online magazine, but really challenging the stereotypes around masculinity. There's another organisation called Witness Change, which shares stories of mental health from all over the world. And I've actually been involved in some really cool projects uh, recently. There's one called Speak On It and one called Mind Over Matter. Mind Over Matter is actually UK-based. But Speak On It is all about how there's the mix between hip-hop and mental health. And it's basically a night that happens in Melbourne twice a year, roughly, where individuals come together and they basically freestyle in the space and will get up and share some hip-hop lyrics or even a poem or sing. And it's a really intimate space and it's not necessarily targeting anything in particular other than the expression of mental health, but it is incredible and it feels therapeutic. You know, I didn't even know that I needed therapy, but <laughs> leaving there, I was kind of like, wow, I feel so much better. You know, it just, it gives you uh, such a buzz and helps you connect with people in such an amazing way that is a very community focus. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the community, you've got music, you've got hip-hop mm. in particular, so that kind of, you know, that beat-laden, you know, yeah, which we know also can have a really positive effect yeah. on us and then overlaying that or weaving into that, you know, stories of mental health and well-being. Mm. Yeah, I think all of those different approaches can be part of that wave to take us into the future of mental health. So it's happening. It is happening already happening, as part yeah. of this evolution. We are moving and perhaps it's happening in niche areas and perhaps the psychologists are actually lagging behind. Yeah. <laughs> it's being led yeah, by we, others. We're used to what we know and we do it the way we know. But yeah, branching out and seeing what everyone else is doing is totally inspiring. So that's our challenge. Where, where would you like to see things in five to ten years' time? Ah. Uh, well, I'd love to see more hip hop um, <laughs> or just creative work around mm. mental health. I think those uh, mind over matter is very much spoken word. So I'd love to see some more spoken word on, around mental health. I suppose uh, one of the things that I'd love to see is people just obviously in those broader spaces feeling comfortable to share and more outreach programs where you have people coming together to connect. And the whole purpose of it is to just connect and it doesn't have to be anything else because we see that you know loneliness is one of the biggest problems today and feeling isolated feeling like you're a burden on other people but if there are spaces where people can just connect even if you have things like you know when i was in grade one there was the friendship bench and you'd sit on the bench and someone would sit next to you if they wanted to be a friend and I don't know exactly how that would look, but if we had more initiatives like that going on in our cities, in our communities, how cool would that be for people to feel like, you know what, this is a designated space to connect. And obviously there's some intimidation that might go along with that, social anxiety that might go along with that. But the more regular and normalised it becomes, um, hopefully the more people attend and, and uh, manage to deal with those things. So really, again, that just that idea and, and what I was visualising there was a, a future where the mental health conversation is just woven into everyday life, you know, through connection, mm. through story, through 
music, through arts, through sports, through all of our different communities and the, and the capacities that it doesn't have to be let's get together to talk about mental ill health or, or mental health issues. It's just that we talk about this stuff while doing the things that we know exactly help right. people. Yeah. Another kind of idea that has floated around in my mind for a while in this vein is the idea of a mental health gym. You know, we, we are moving to this space where it's all about thriving and what can we do with our well-being workout every day. Uh, what about a space where we go and we do that mental health workout? You know, it's so common for us to go to gym. Everyone's got a gym membership or a yoga studio membership or whatever. What about a mental health gym where you go and you do things to work out your mind? And it's all about the many various wide forms of ways that you can actually focus on your mental health. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. I'd go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully it's not too expensive. Well, yeah, you know, but perhaps you can even incorporate all of those things. So you go to lift weights because we know that's good for people. You go to do yoga, yeah. but you also go to just sit and converse in a community. You might have music. Yeah. You might have, you know, all might of those gardening. different elements. Yeah. yeah, they have to have some yeah. outdoors in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, fantastic. I'm very excited by that possibility. <laughs> Jared, just finally, you know, we have a lot of wonderful listeners out there who aren't necessarily psychologists themselves. You know, they're interested people who value thriving and growing and self-development and they value that both for themselves but also their families, their own communities. Do you have tips or thoughts on what all of us can do? in order to perhaps make some of this a reality? I think one of the first things that we need to ask ourselves in that sense is, well, first let me say it can be challenging because there's also so much out there and to know where to begin looking can be really difficult. So uh, to even ask the question in and of itself can be a little bit daunting. But I suppose one question that I'd add to that is ask, which community am I part of? Which community group am I uh, immersing myself in? I know in trauma work, that's one of the first things that you might try and do with someone is, is, is try and guide them into a community so they feel like they have people around them. It's so important for our mental health. And in that community, are we engaging in conversations around emotions, thoughts, loneliness, relationship challenges, distress tolerance, you know, things like that? where we can have these conversations and in a very supportive environment. I think one thing uh, that people can do every day is maybe look for other organisations other than the most prominent ones like Beyond Blue or the Black Dog Institute. Now they're great and I'm not suggesting to take anything away from them, but at the same time there's so much else out there and so many amazing initiatives, like we said, that are kind of already happening in some way and to support that and to get involved in those other initiatives, you know, attending workshops, group sessions and learning through the school of life rather than necessarily the school of university and academics and to think about how you're connecting with other people in that sense. Yeah, fantastic. I'm just thinking about my communities and what I'm involved in. And, and when you think about it, you know, even in a practical sense, there's lots of different communities that you're involved in, whether that kind of yeah. formal or informal. I think about my children's school community. I think about the sporting club communities. I think about my local community. I think about my groups of girlfriends. I think about work. I work in a co-working space. We have a lovely community here. So maybe it's about even just starting where you are starting where you are and maybe bringing some of those conversations to where you are already. Yeah, 
trying to get comfortable with that, which might be confronting, but, you know, it's baby steps, you know, yeah, starting starting small, taking baby steps and, and even just initiating a conversation about connection or about mental health or about well-being or maybe even about something you've just learned. Yeah, yeah, that would be incredible. Jared, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it. You've certainly given me some things to think about in terms of what is out there and what's happening already. I think that's just such an interesting idea that, you know, mental health and well-being can be more than the traditional one-on-one model and thinking about the future possibilities of mental health and, and the fact that these things are already happening out there. We perhaps just need to explore a little further. And I know that this is something that you said you do explore and are exploring on the lives of others. So that might be somewhere for people, our lovely listeners to start if they want to hook in with the lives of others on Instagram and use that as the launching pad. Thank you very much, Jared. I really do appreciate your time. It's been a really good conversation. I hope that conversation with Jared has got you thinking about the communities that you're part of and their role in keeping you mentally healthy and well, but also about the role that you play within them in helping others to feel connected and cared for, because that's really how community works, isn't it? It's sort of a cooperative, collaborative thing that we're all a part of. Also, what mental health or wellbeing initiatives are you aware of or involved in that might be a little bit different to the norm or a bit lesser known? If there's something really cool happening within your industry or your profession or your local area, let me know as I'd love to help spread the word about it. And I'm sure Jared would support us in doing that as well. You can drop me an email at ellenjackson at potential.com.au or send me a message via one of the socials. Potential Psychology is on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. If you would like a transcript of today's conversation or you'd like to find out more about Jared and his work, you will find everything you need in the show notes for this episode at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll also find links to some of Jared's articles. We've popped some of his media appearances in there and the resources that he mentioned in today's show. And a very big thank you now to the Wellbeing and Evidence and Horizons Conference for partnering with Potential Psychology to bring you this episode of the show. To find out more about the Wellbeing, Evidence and Horizons Conference, which is taking place in Melbourne, Australia in April 2020, head to weh.org.au. So what do we have for you next week? Well, my guest and I will be talking about animal-assisted psychology, specifically equine assisted psychology we're talking horses and what horses can teach us and how they can help us and my guests work as director of harnessing wellness psychology in the beautiful Yarra Ranges in Victoria Australia she is Naomi Rosthorn and here she is to tell you a little bit more a lot of people project their feelings onto the horse or the pony so that the horse or the pony turn to walk away from the client. The client might say, oh, they don't like me, nobody likes me. The horse might stand with the client and then that might be an opportunity for the client to reflect, oh, 
someone does like me or he just wants to be with me. And then we can talk about, well, what are you noticing in your body right now? And we can start exploring some emotional regulation, bring in some mindfulness tools or metaphorical exercises as well. So, you know, if, if the herd of the horses here were your family, who would you say you were and how would you relate to everybody else and what do you notice? That's next week on the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm very much looking forward to being back in your ears then with Naomi. In the meantime, stay safe, go forth and thrive, flourish and fulfil your potential.